Hello, Precision Insights podcast listeners. This is your host, Manning Chang at Genexus. Thrilled to take you on another journey to precision medicine. In today's episode, our guest, Corey Sanders, founder of HUNA Health Pharmacogenetic Consulting and president of Hawaii's Pharmacists Association. Hi, Corey. Welcome to the show. Hello. So happy to be here. Yeah. So before jumping in, could you tell our audience a little more about yourself? Sure. So I am a pharmacist by trade. I went to school at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, did a one-year general PGY-1 at a healthcare system in Virginia called Centera, and then I moved out to Hawaii about four years ago, and I have been here ever since. So I spent a couple years working as a medication safety pharmacist at the VA, and after a three-year stunt there, I transitioned into pharmacogenomic consulting and establishing my own company, Huna Health. Great. So yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about your previous work experience at the VA for medication safety? Sure. So that was a really unique position for me, and it was a very big career pivot. So my residency, I had spent a lot of time focusing on critical care and inpatient setting, and I transitioned to an outpatient-facing facility. We were completely ambulatory care, and I took a medication safety position. So that is one of the beautiful things about a pharmacy degree is that it can be so versatile, but I certainly wasn't expecting to make that much of a pivot with my first jump after residency. But it was a great learning experience for me, both about you know, learning what I want in the culture of a pharmacy department, but also getting exposure to medication safety on both a higher procedural level with policy and protocol development, but also with some of the clinical implementation and small strategies that you can take with medication safety initiatives that directly affect patients and providers and pharmacists. So that's actually kind of how I got into the pharmacogenomic space is that it's almost a perfect parallel to being able to provide precision prescribing and the safest drug for the patient the first time around instead of mitigating around a lot of adverse drug responses or medications that just don't work for patients in general, that really, really piqued my interest. So I got certified in pharmacogenomics just about a year before leaving that position, but it was a really, really unique way to learn about the role of genomics and patient safety. Cool. Yeah. So what was the most eye-opening part of that position? Was it the use of pharmacogenomics or just like the different kind of patients that you would encounter in that position? I think a little bit of both. So by the time that I had gotten to the VA, there was already some national funding in the PHASER program, which is the VA national pilot program for pharmacogenomic testing. So I helped to get that going at our site, so VA Pacific Islands out of Honolulu. I helped to kind of put that in place. So phaser and pharmacogenomics were already part of the conversation at the national level, and getting pharmacists involved in that process from the start was part of the minimum requirements for being able to implement that as a facility. But then just, I mean, the, the population that we serve in Hawaii is so, so different. So I know none of you can see me on the screen because we're just doing video, but I am a Caucasian female. And that is where a huge majority of drug research is done is on Caucasian populations. And that is just not the demographic of this state. So we are so, so diverse with Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders. I mean, we are a true melting pot of the Pacific Basin. 
So yeah. seeing some of those clinical responses to medications specifically because of the patient population here in this state was also very eye-opening as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you did definitely use PGX in various settings or had the, yeah, the PGX usage in the VA definitely had some various purposes of trying to find medications for that population. Mm -hmm. uh, so right now with your current pharmacogenetic consulting company, what kind of uses do you see in pharmacogenetics right now? So we are kind of, you know, pharmacogenomics can be applied to such a broad range of disease states and medication classes. I feel, gosh, that's such a loaded question because I'm yeah. so biased in the fact yeah. that everyone should be getting tested. <laughs> yeah. But specifically here in the state, some of the things that I really highlight with my own company is the, the Plavix lawsuit. So I, I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast before, but I can bring it up again just because it's local to home now. Yeah, but a couple of years ago, yeah, the, the state of Hawaii sued the makers of Plavix because they didn't market correctly, knowing that Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, a lot of those patients don't metabolize Plavix to exactive form. So it results in a therapeutic failure, which is a horrible clinical implication for an antiplatelet medication. So that's something that I highlight all the time is that, you know, we have the minority populations that aren't processing a lot of medications correctly. And out of that lawsuit, the state of Hawaii actually won over $800 million. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that money is right now, but that's just something that comes to top of mind with our patient population specifically. And then something else that's really close to home right now is that the state of Hawaii is in a huge healthcare crisis with providers. We're almost a thousand providers short. We are really, really hurting in the mental health space. And we're tapping on a lot of other providers and giving them provider status to be able to fill that gap. But we're not talking about using pharmacogenomic testing on a state level. So I am just so passionate about being able to bring that to the clinical picture early on and streamline some of the time to treatment and some of these follow-up appointments and the adverse drug responses. So those are the biggest ones that come to mind is that some of the implications in cardiology with Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, but then because of the landscape of healthcare in our state is really utilizing pharmacogenomics to lift some of our specialty areas where we're, we're seeing some issues. Yeah, that's great. So as you were talking about Hawaii pharmacists, like what kind of unique possibilities are out there for the Hawaiian pharmacists out there right now? Do Are there bills being put in place so that they can enable prescribing of minor medications like other states, like in Colorado, uh, other ones across the United States? Sure. So we had great success this year. Oh my gosh, I am so jazzed to talk about this. The Hawaii Pharmacists Association put forward a bill this year for the first time in years to give pharmacists the ability to bill under the medical benefit for both public and private insurers. So we are very behind the times. I call it running on aloha time in this state. Pharmacy practice is hasn't progressed in a good couple of years, we'll just put it that way. But there's actually a benefit of us being a little bit behind is that we can say, hey, we want a payer agnostic system. We don't want to have to just pick and choose and go after each insurer separately or public and private insurance and delineating between those two. So we are just saying payer agnostic, anything across the board that's already within a pharmacist scope of practice, we should be able to bill. 
So that is going to be our first strategy. We put that bill forth this year. Unfortunately, there's a clause in Hawaii law that anything that modifies insurance codes, you have to have a study or an audit done before that can go in place. So the bill itself didn't pass, but it did pass for that mandatory audit so that the office of the auditor and the insurance commissioner can take a look at the cost of having pharmacists bill. And then that'll report back and we'll run the bill back again in 2024. But that's our first step is, hey, anything that's within our scope of practice, we need to be able to bill for. We are one of the only providers that are taught to provide a lot of the information and the knowledge that we have for free. So we just need to be on par with any other provider and treated like any other provider to increase access to care and really practice at the top of our license. So nothing specific to pharmacogenomics in this podcast, but this is a really great first step to really bring providers or pharmacists to the table and treat it just like any other provider. Yeah, that's great news. Yeah, that's something that you're extremely passionate about and something that you wanted to bring to light during this podcast. So obviously you need you guys need to pass some billing within the state legislature so to get some billing directly from the state but are there other ways of pharmacists like yourself can get funding from let's say grants or any kind of specific patient groups that you might have mentioned previously Sure I think that grants are a huge area that are overlooked and really being locally positioned as a pharmacist and knowing the landscape of healthcare in your state, regardless of where you are, that is something that should be done if you're going to tap into the grant space, or you should at least consider that you know this space so much better than any, you know, national institution or national grant. So I always advocate for pharmacists, if you're looking to make a career transition, or if you're looking to step into a pharmacogenomic space, Look around you and see what areas of need there are in the patients that you're serving or in the healthcare system that you're a part of and tap into some grant funding. And that can even be done locally too. So maybe even proposing some ideas within your healthcare institution of let's do a cost analysis of what these adverse drug responses are causing or what kind of patients have the most follow-up or the most emergency department department visits. So there can be a lot of state funding that's often not used in the healthcare space. That's great. But also, if you're still within an institution, consider doing some kind of cost analysis of a medication that's impacted by pharmacogenomic testing and potentially creating some kind of workflow adjustment around it and an internal review of of cost and how pharmacogenomics can come into play. So a little bit of both. That was a loaded answer. There's grant funding at the state level, but even if you're not an independent contractor like I am, there's still mm-hmm. some huge implications within a system too. Yeah, that's great. So where can a pharmacist kind of find those grants? Like where do they look? Do they just go on Google? Do they just go on ChatGPT? I'm sure there's lots of yes. like, you know, <laughs> ChatGPT. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's, I've had some great luck with tapping into our small business development center. So every state has an SBDC that's funded. It's a combination of state and national funds, and it's normally run in alongside or through the Chamber of Commerce. But normally those centers have a really great pulse on some big grant funding within the state. Um, also reaching out to other pharmacist-friendly organizations wherever you are. So like I have grant funding right now through the Department of Health because their pain patients are really expensive to the DOH and just the healthcare system in general. So we're looking at pharmacogenomic testing and pain. But those are two really great places to start is tapping into your small business development center 
I mean, a Google search it certainly doesn't hurt either, but there's also some, well, at least here in Hawaii, we have some local websites where I can see where all the grant funding has gone from the state. And so I can see where the big bucks are going and try to tap into those associations as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So got to get creative. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You definitely have to. You have to scavenge your way, go to many different government websites, I'm sure. And, mm -hmm. and there's always many different government websites, right? You can go to the state of Hawaii and not find exactly what you're looking for. But let's say you go to, like you said, small business, and then you might be finding, being able to find exactly what you're trying to look for regarding the funding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some insurance programs too. So, there's a lot of insurers that set aside money for pilot programs. So if you have an insurance area or insurance provider in your area that dominates the private market, that's a great place to start too. Great. Are there other alternative reimbursement models that we haven't discussed yet that you might want to talk about? There's always cash pay. So I wouldn't even consider that reimbursement. But if you know that there's patients in your area that can't afford the cost of a test and a pharmacist consult. So without direct reimbursement, but potentially tapping into someone who has a flex spending account or some kind of tax incentive to be able to pay for pharmacogenomic testing, that's one way to advertise the services. Something else to consider though is, I am again biased because I'm involved with the State Pharmacy Association, but really being involved in the state association and how active they are in the legislature to protect a pharmacist's scope of practice is something really important to consider as pharmacogenomics becomes standard of care. So right now it's kind of a free for all because in a huge majority of states, if not all, I'm not quite sure of the, the state of the legislature in California. I know they were working to get some reimbursement models in place for pharmacists. But in most states, I mean, pharmacogenomic testing is not covered by private insurance. And so it doesn't matter if a pharmacist or a PA or a DO is ordering the test, it's just not going to be covered. But when pharmacogenomics does become standard of practice, it's really important for pharmacists to consider what their scope of practice looks like. So if you had built a consulting business around cash pay patients based off the fact that there's no reimbursement, when there does become reimbursement, that's going to completely alter the model of your business because now you're going to have all these other providers who already have a broad scope of practice who are essentially going to be able to bill for these services and provide pharmacogenomic testing at a much lower cost. And so it's keeping that on your radar too. As a pharmacist, are you going to be able to be protected to continue in a business model that you have if it's not part of your scope of practice and being making sure that you're a voice at the table for pharmacists to make sure that the legislature and your, your scope of practice and your pharmacy practice acts reflects what you can do. Otherwise, I do think this space will be taken up by other healthcare providers that aren't necessarily medication experts like a pharmacist is. Exactly. So you briefly touched about how your association is pretty the backbone of kind of pushing reimbursement reform within your state. How can pharmacists like yourself kind of push that within their own association going forward to see that, hey, we want to get more reimbursement from the state. How can my association or me help my association get this kind of reimbursement going? Sure. I think that so many state associations are constantly looking for new perspectives of pharmacy and pharmacists. And I do think our 
our profession in general is going to be completely changed in the next decade by technology. So really thinking about in traditional pharmacy settings, what can and should be replaced by automation is going to drastically alter the profession. And a lot of, there just will be a lot of changes to what a pharmacist can do and how many full-time equivalents there are across the state. So getting involved in the state association and being a voice of this is how we can insert our clinical knowledge into the patient treatment plan. This is where a pharmacist can step in and offload some work from a provider and provide a level of expertise that they may not have. And really leaning into the clinical services a pharmacist can provide, getting involved in your state association to articulate that and be able to provide examples of that is absolutely amazing and crucial. So one, I'll kind of break this answer up, I guess, into two pieces is making sure that you are a voice for whatever specialty area that you're in, even if you're within an institution and really articulating that to the pharmacy association. Cause I mean, the more that we hear from our constituents and the voices, the better and the better educated decisions we can make moving forward. But also as a pharmacist, super important to educate your legislators and your elected officials on what a pharmacist can do. So That was a huge roadblock that we had this past legislative session, and it was our first. It was my rookie year, so I will totally take some of the fall for this. But we realized about halfway through the session, a lot of these legislators don't see a pharmacist outside of a dispensing role. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to move forward the profession and ask for billing rights if they truly don't understand what a pharmacist can do outside of counting pills, so to speak. I mean, I know what a pharmacist can do, but- There's definitely a level of education on top of advocacy and building that level of education outside of the legislative session or just helping them to understand what a pharmacist can do and even helping some of our fellow providers understand that may not have had a team-based care model in school, how a pharmacist can alleviate some of the administrative work on their end and ultimately improve patient outcomes. I think it's one, just tapping into your state association to be that voice but two, tapping into broader medical community and those that influence decision-making can be really impactful as well. Great. I know you previously mentioned about the reimbursements and how you are more outcome-based oriented in terms of the reimbursements. Is that the best way of going about it? Do you see any kind of value in the value-based version of those reimbursements? I think that pharmacists are going to play an integral role in value-based care. So that is just a conversation that, I mean, the state associations I'm sure are comfortable having, but also most pharmacists is that, you know, you invest in another member of the healthcare team, like just like you would invest in another, another member of the care team to ultimately have much greater outcomes. So I, I totally think, yes, there is some There's leverage to both the value-based care model and then just a a general outcomes reimbursement too. I think, I think they're both equally important. Yeah. Is there anyone, is there any one that kind of outweighs the other? I know a lot of the companies or I guess health systems in general always look at the bottom line and they kind Mm -hmm. of fixate on outcome-based because that's kind of like the reactive approach, but the value mm-hmm. base is definitely where you are being much more proactive. And I definitely see keep, that's where we should be aiming to go towards. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are more focused in the reactive approach. 
Mm-hmm. I think it'll just take time, yeah. time and educated conversation and being able to provide concrete examples. And also, I mean, just some analysis of pharmacist involved care or pharmacist driven care. I think it'll just be a much bigger conversation that's probably going to extend for years <laughs> is really, you know, trying to shift from just that bottom line lens to yeah. really viewing healthcare and the patient on a bigger scale. I, I think it'll take years and conversations and more data to make that happen. Yeah, I fully agree with that for sure. But so, there's great utility in pharmacogenomics for it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so what other kind of future trends do you see in the pharmacy space in the next couple of years? Gosh, I am excited to be a pharmacist right now. I think that people that are going to embrace technology and innovation, this is going to be a really cool redefining decade for the profession in terms of essentially getting payment models caught up to the evolution of the profession and what we learn in school. So I, I... Unfortunately, I do think that a lot of pharmacists practice not towards the top of their license, which is just the current U.S. healthcare model right now, and it's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. But I'm so excited for us to finally be able to flex some of our clinical knowledge and utilize our our expert-level medication management in different areas once I I think it's inevitable that a huge arm of the profession is going to be outsourced by technology. So it's just a cool place to be if you're willing to embrace that and have a little bit of a redefinition of the profession. I think that COVID started shining a light on us in a way that was something that we'd been doing for a long time, but it was nice for the public to see it. (laughs) And so kind of building off of the unfortunate momentum of of COVID, unfortunate in many ways, but exciting for pharmacy to be able to pivot. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely the turning point in the digitization of the world, really. Uh, And Uh I think it really redefined healthcare in in so many ways and Mm -hmm. how pharmacists and are kind of underutilized currently in the current model, even though they are highly trained clinicians, they are the masters of prescribing as we like to call them. And they are definitely perceived as just pill counters to the general population and definitely pharmacists are just way more than that. And Mm -hmm. We're just here to empower the pharmacists in realizing that and hopefully educating the general public as well to know that you can contact your pharmacist if you're having some kind of drug issues or maybe if you want to have some kind of second opinions on your medications, there Mm -hmm. are great resources to reach out to. Sure. Yeah, I'm excited for the education to start really incorporating pharmacists, maybe finding their voice on a larger scale. Hmm. And being able to advocate for the profession in interprofessional care teams and really showcase the skill set that we have. It's going to, I think, be really exciting. Yeah. Do you see anything like telehealth being a big thing? I know definitely in Hawaii, uh, you're going to handling with a lot of remote cities where they or towns where they might not have as much contact with other kind of healthcare individuals. Uh, Is telehealth Mm -hmm. a pretty big thing there in Hawaii? Gosh, we just put so much money into telehealth, especially during and after COVID. That's a huge priority of the state right now with healthcare. So, I mean, we're at another level. Uh, I'll take it a step further. So a lot of our patients on neighbor islands, I mean, we don't even have access to Wi-Fi in some areas. So it's like really creating the infrastructure from the ground up. Telehealth in some areas isn't even a part of the conversation because they don't even have the basic technology infrastructure to make that happen. I do think 
telehealth, I, I, I'm sure everyone's feeling the uptick in telehealth and being able to make that more common practice, mm -hmm. um, especially in our remote areas. I can say exactly what you were alluding to. Yeah, I think there'll be a huge, huge implication for pharmacists to be able to provide services over telehealth or at least medication management services, some of our comprehensive medication reviews, and just being really able to connect those services with the patient, maybe in a way that wasn't done in the past. But yeah, I mean, so many clinics have shifted to telehealth appointments. My entire business model is based primarily off of telehealth and being able to leverage services across different clinics without physically sitting in them. Patients tend, I mean, depending on the ailment of the patient too, of course, if they're bleeding, they don't want to be sitting in a telehealth appointment or if there's something that needs to be inspected, that's yeah. not the best vehicle of communication. But I do feel like a lot of patients also prefer a telehealth consult. It's really easy for them to just sit at home and, and be able to get expert level care without having to leave the house. Yeah. But yeah, we'll, we rely on that a lot in this state and we're working to build that infrastructure, especially across our neighbor islands. That's great. So this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Do you have any parting words for our audience listening? The future of pharmacy is going to belong to those that think outside the box. I think those people will be huge pioneers for the profession. And so I would ask any pharmacist to really sit down and consider, you know, what avenues of their jobs can be replaced by technology. I know we've said that a million times. But also look around at your practice environment and what areas can be improved with your clinical skill set and really leaning into those areas and starting to create a name for pharmacy outside of kind of the narrative that we've created for ourselves for the most part so in, in so many ways for so long. So I'm excited for the future of pharmacy. I guess I'll leave it at that again. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And lastly, what's the best way for the people to find you and learn about your work? Oh, Sure. So easiestly or easiest way to reach me is directly through my website. So huna-health.com. And then I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn too. So you can shoot me a message on LinkedIn or connect on LinkedIn. You spell my name, C-O-R-R-I-E Sanders. Great. Thank you so much, Corey. And thank you everyone for listening.